Hey everybody, it's Pastor Craig, and welcome to another episode of In the Weeds. We are, um, we, I started this little podcast because we were hitting things in the book of Ephesians that really uh, kind of necess- necessitated a deeper dive, and so, um, but we can't really preach for, you know, 40 minutes on election or on, um, like what we're going to talk about today, which is the difference between Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity, and how eventually that parts paths. So, we are spending a little bit of time off the beaten path. Uh, this is not stuff that's going to make the sermon necessarily, but this is maybe something that would be a little bit more appropriate for an undergraduate or seminary level classroom. I actually gave this particular um, uh, lecture. I, it's part of my um, New Testament introduction class as we do the book of Hebrews and the book of James. And I also gave it when I was leading the um, tour in Turkey. So talking about Jewish Christianity in the diaspora and how that works and what we call um, the parting of the ways. So we're, we were, have been in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 11, in this really wonderful passage about uh, the Gentiles um, who were at one time separated from Messiah, verse 12, 2, 12 in Ephesians 2, 12, um, you were at one time separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promises, having no hope and without God in the world. That phrase, um, hopeless, um, helpless, or sorry, hopeless and godless in the world, is, is such a heartbreaking phrase. But when Paul is writing this, he's writing to um, people who did not were not ethnically Jewish. They were not part of the people of God, the covenants of God, the ethnic Jewish people. And so we did talk on Sunday about how in the Jewish mindset there was, um, when God made an a-, a covenant with Abraham, that he would make him into a great nation, and then there would be many nations, the gen- the goyim, uh, ta-ethne in Greek, and that Abraham was meant to be a blessing to those Gentiles, to, to, the, to the nations, and that the word Gentiles is the word the nations uh, in Hebrew, goyim in, uh, in Greek, ta ethne. And there's always been this tension between um, uh, essentially Jewish people and Gentiles, and Gentiles and Jewish people. And so, but that was how, in the Jewish mindset, they viewed the world. And so what I want to talk about today is, um, we talked about the idea that when it came to salvation, the Gentiles were the visiting team, that they were the ones who would walk into the synagogue and not really know what to do, where to sit, how to, like, they were on the outside. They were the outsiders. And Paul says in this, they were far off. They weren't the ones who were near. They were the ones who were far off. They were estranged. Um and so when they walked into the salvation that was offered by the God of Israel, they were the visitors. Now, today, I would say when you walk into church and you are hearing about the salvation that Paul is preaching in the book of Ephesians that we're talking about, you probably, if you're listening to this, you're prob- you probably feel right at home that um, there's not this kind of ethnic uh, division. As a matter of fact, um, Almost the tables have been turned that now um, the church is primarily and predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish, 
And if you were Jewish, you might walk into our church on a Sunday morning, and it would, you would feel like a visitor. You were on the visiting team. And so what we want to explore today is just this historically, um, how did we get to the point where the tables had essentially been turned, and now maybe Jewish people would feel um, at, like visitors when it came to the salvation that was being preached in the New Testament, whereas in the first century, the Gentiles felt like visitors with the salvation that was being preached in the New Testament. How do we get that? And what this is called in academic circles is it's called the parting of the ways, the parting of the ways. So this is really about um, Jewish Christianity in the first century and the parting of the ways. All right? So um, hopefully, again, if hang in there. Uh, there we're going to hit a lot of stuff and just talk historically about how this happens. But the first thing to note is really um, the Jewishness of early Christianity. One place, if you wanted to look at one example about just how Jewish early Christianity is, if you open up to James chapter 2, James chapter 2 and beginning in verse, well, verse 1, it says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Um, and so he's admonishing them to not to show partiality. And then what he says in verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes into your assembly, and then you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, um, you know, he's basically saying you're, you're showing partiality. But what's particularly interesting is in James 2, 2, when it says, um, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, the word for assembly there is the Greek word sunagoge, which is literally transliterated the word synagogue. And what James is saying is, if a man comes into your synagogue, you know, in this manner. And what's what's in, what's significant about this is that when James is writing this, James is a follower of Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. When he's writing this, he's assuming that everyone who believes in Jesus that he's writing to is meeting in a synagogue. And this is this is amazing to think about that the early, that early Christianity, what we would call Christianity, is finding its day of worship and place of worship in a synagogue. And so let's just talk a little bit about the Jewishness of early Christianity and then kind of walk through this. So the first thing to note is that the earliest followers of Jesus, everyone who claimed him to be the Messiah um, and followed him as Lord, they were all Jewish. <laughs> so like... Peter, the Apostle Paul, all of the disciples, um, the apostles, I should say. Um, only the, the the odd man out would be the, uh, you know, like a Luke or, um, you know, that the kind of Jewish but Gentile or, um, or Hellenistic Jewish, but like guys like Mark and Peter and James and John and Paul, these are all Jewish people. And so one of the things that we might be able to say is that the New Testament could be said to bear witness— to Jewish Christianity, or to talk about maybe a better way to talk about the early um, followers of Jesus is the early Jesus movement. Okay, and so um, as you read your New Testament, Jesus and all of his followers they sought redemption and renewal, salvation within the context of Jewish faith. 
So that's significant. Like, as we read our New Testament, this is all about Jewish faith. Um, the Bible for Jesus and Paul and the other earliest followers of Jesus is what we would call today the Old Testament, but they would not have referred to it as the Old Testament. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't have referred to their own writings as the New Testament. They would have simply called what they were reading as the Scriptures. You could look in, in a host of passages like Matthew 21, tw- Matthew 22, Matthew 26, 20, 54, um, Mark 12, 24, where Jesus just refers to the Scriptures. And even the Apostle Paul in like Romans 1, 2, that the Scriptures bear witness of this. So um, it, very simply speaking, what we would refer to as the Old Testament, that's something that happens later on. Paul and Jesus would simply refer to it as the Scriptures. So um, also, when we read in the New Testament, we read that um, places of worship and meeting, that in the book of Acts, the earliest followers of Jesus find a place in the temple courtyards of Solomon's portico, Acts 3.1, that there is this implication that they are going to synagogues on the Sabbath, uh, that's Paul, the Apostle Paul, whenever he goes even into a Gentile city, the first place he goes is to a synagogue on the Sabbath. And then um, if there's no synagogue, that you see that the the Jewish custom of meeting down by a river, like in Philippi in Acts 16, is where they are, they're finding people who are listening for the gospel. So these are significant things. And so um, also to ask the question, what are the earliest followers of Jesus called? Um, we might say Christians, but they weren't, that wasn't the earliest way that they referred to themselves or the word, or that they were referred to by the culture at large. They were called, they called themselves in Acts 9, Acts 19, they called themselves the way or what we called like the path, um, the road that they are called the way. Or in Acts 24, they're called the sect of the Nazarenes. Um, and probably there was very little distinguishing early on between the followers of Jesus and the Jews. As a matter of fact, um, when there's this conflict in the city of Corinth about uh, among the synagogue leaders and the followers of Jesus, and they drag Jason in front of the Bema seat, um, the, the, the pro-council in Corinth is like, hey, you Jews, you settle this among yourselves. Like, this is not—this is an internal conflict within Judaism— this is not something that the Romans need to, to rule on. So by that time, there really was not a um, an understanding of a clear distinction between the followers of Jesus and those who were practicing the Judaism or the Jews of the city. That the followers of Jesus were really simply a sect underneath the umbrella of Judaism. What we find is that there are particular locations where... Um, the believers, even the Jewish and the Gentile believers, are um, notably different than the Jews and the pagans, and that's like in Acts chapter 11 in um, in Syrian Antioch, where they don't know what to call these people. Like, these are, these are Gentiles who read the Torah, but they're Jews who are not Torah observant, and they both eat together. What do we call these people? And they all follow this Messiah. What do we call them? And that was where, in Acts chapter 11, it says that they were first called Christians in Syrian Antioch. And so um, we see the word Christian show up later on in First Peter as kind of a term of derision, but um, Christians, it says that 
that's a later addition to this. So anyway, so what we see is so that that's the Jewishness of the early of early Christianity. In a lot of ways, the New Testament is um is first century Jewish literature. And I think we have to remember that as we read our New Testaments and even as we think about the background behind our New Testaments. This is largely in Gentile regions, but with a Jewish mindset and Jewish theology, okay, as we think about reading our New Testaments, okay? But what we start to see is that there is a gradual parting of the ways, and um, there's a number of movements within this parting of the ways. The first one would probably be this, the uh, moving from synagogues, out of synagogues, and into homes, so as we noted that Paul's practice of going first to a synagogue in a town, um, when or if he is not received well, uh, he leaves, and he takes some of the people with him, and he finds a new meeting place, but presumably adopting a similar liturgy, like reading from the scriptures, explaining and teaching, prayer, songs and hymns. The, the giving of alms, probably the same liturgy from the synagogue, but he goes into a home, into a new space, maybe um, a home, or we find in like a rented areas, like he does in, in Ephesus, he rents the Hall of Tyrannus, or perhaps in some spacious villas that he might find for, of patrons that kind of host the early Jesus movement. Um, Philemon is said to host a house, or a, a, a gathering in his house, um, so yeah, those are, those are all places where you might see, uh, the Jesus movement move out of a synagogue and into a new space. Okay. We also see a movement away from Saturday or Sabbath worship to Sunday and Sunday worship. And so if you move off of Saturday, you're moving away from the Sabbath regulations that you would have as a Jew. Uh, you move away from the synagogue. You look at now Sunday as the the day of resurrection or the day of new beginning. And um, what we find is that maybe in the first century, believers are meeting on a Saturday, but after the first century and into the second century, uh, Sunday, as we read Jew, uh, Christian literature, Sunday had become the universal day of rest among the followers of Jesus by the time of the second century. So that's the 100. So really, that must have some roots in the first century. We don't see it as much in the book of Acts. We do see synagogue Saturday meetings in the book of Acts. But moving towards Sunday is something that happens as you move into the second century. Okay, So we have this movement away from synagogues into homes. We have a movement away from Saturday to Sunday. We also see that the role of Torah, or the role of the law, becomes a much more nuanced and controversial point among Christians of Jewish ancestry. Um, there would have been a spectrum of thought among Jews and um, and the Jews and Jews who believed in Jesus that Jesus was the Messiah about Torah observance. So let me just give you a little bit of the spectrum over here. So imagine a spectrum, and on the left hand side, you have um, what you would call non-believing Jews. So people who are Jewish. Torah observant, whether they live in Israel or whether they live out in the diaspora, but they're Jewish and they're Torah observant, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, they follow Torah, um, and and they actually are not—they're not—they're kind of not down with the Messianic movement, the Gentile inclusive movement. 
Okay. But then you go just just to the right of them, you would have um, people who would believe they were Jews and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they also believed that coming to Jesus as Messiah meant that you needed to be Torah observant. You needed to obey food laws, circumcision laws, Sabbath regulations. That was part of your faith in Jesus. This is what, and you were, um, you were actually, you believed that every Gentile who came in needed to proselytize and become Jewish. That's what we call the Judaizers. All right, people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah were Torah observant and also believe that every Gentile who came in needed to become Torah observant as well. That's the Judaizers, and that's the—Paul that's, will write about that in the book of Galatians, okay, about that, about that tension. Then you have another group, if you move more towards the middle of the spectrum here, and these were Jews who were Jewish, Jewish ancestry, ethnic Jews, who maybe kept Torah themselves— but didn't believe that Gentiles needed to become Jewish in Torah observance, um, but needed to morally observe Jewish moral ethics. And that would have been what we would, if you look in um, Acts 15, that would have been the Jerusalem Council's approach. I'm Jewish, I hold to Torah, I don't think that Gentiles need to keep Sabbath regulations or food laws or circumcision, but they do need to, you know, um, not kill other people, um, not practice fornication, not be idolaters. Okay. So the permissive Jews, you might say that they were, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they still kept Torah themselves, but didn't think that Gentiles needed to, they could still be saved. And then you have, um, so you have non-believing Jews on the left Moving over, you have the Judaizers, then you've got permissive Jews in the middle, and then you move over to like the Pauline camp, which was this, that Paul was a ethnic Jew, and when he was among ethnic Jews, he kept Torah. But he actually believed that, um, and he didn't believe that Gentiles needed to adopt, needed to become Jewish, and he actually was very active in evangelizing those Gentiles. And that as he evangelized them, he made, he made it a point to make very few Jewish cultural demands other than no idolatry, no immorality. Okay? So, um, so the permissive Jews in the middle might say, hey, it's cool if they come to faith. We might not go out and evangelize them, but it's cool if they do. But Paul is saying, no, we're going to be aggressive in taking the gospel into Gentile regions and giving the gospel to Gentiles. And then on the far right, you would have Gentiles, uh, non-ethnic believers in Jesus, non-ethnic Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah and adopted him as, uh, were incorporated into the promises of Israel. But they didn't adopt Jewish circumcision or Jewish food laws or Jewish Sabbath regulations, but they did adopt the moral codes of no idolatry, no immorality, um, and eventually, eventually, what we find is that of this whole spectrum, the majority of people who come to faith in Jesus and the majority of people who practice Christianity are in that far, um, that far right column of that they are non-ethnic Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, and they do not practice Torah observance other than the moral regulations of no idolatry, no immorality.
But in terms of circumcision, food laws, Sabbath regulations, they are not practicing that. And that eventually becomes the majority. All right? So what we've seen is this movement away from synagogue to homes, Saturday from Saturday to Sunday. Um, Torah becomes this nuanced and controversial thing. Um, we see the diminished—we we add to that that there's a diminished role of the temple over time, and we'll talk about that in historical factors. And then eventually the recognition that Jesus is divine— um, really is going to be the idea that Jesus is God is really going to push those far-left Jews um, who are don't believe Jesus is Messiah, and now you're saying that Jesus is the same as Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and yet you've got God the Father and God the Son. Like, the, the nuances of Trinitarian monotheism were not received well by monotheistic Jews, and there's going to be some controversies over time about that, all right? So that's really the, 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 the part—all of these things that are the gradual parting of the ways, and um, I'm going to move into another category of just the historical factors that all of these things that we've just talked about, how do some historical events and historical factors um, play into this widening of the gap between ethnic Jews— and ethnic Jews who believed in Jesus, and Gentiles who believed in Jesus. And the first historical factor is 70 AD, the destruction of the temple by the Romans. And with the destruction of the temple, um, and the really just the destruction of the entire nation by Roman armies, one of the things that we noted and we note when in the Gospels is that we have— Really, uh, there's no one way to practice Judaism when we look at Jesus. Jesus is—we've got Pharisees, we've got Sadducees. Sadducees are connected with the temple. We've got zealots who are like, we're going to be violent for um, the preservation of our ways. Um, and the Pharisees are like, we're not going to be violent. And, um, and then the Essenes that are out in the desert, and they've withdrawn. They're not, they're not going to the temple, but the Pharisees are going to the temple. You got John the Baptist out saying, hey, you can have, you can have forgiveness out here at the river. You, know, you don't need to go to the temple. So you've got all these different ideas about how Christianity, or I'm sorry, how Judaism ought to be practiced. But when the Romans come through, and they basically rape, pillage, and plunder the entire nation, and they destroy the temple. When they destroy the temple, they destroy the Sadducees. The Sadducees no longer have a place to offer sacrifices or get money, or there's no more temple to oversee. There's also historical evidence that the Romans just slaughter the Essenes out in the desert, that there's not a single person left. As a matter of fact, the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls, this great discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls out in the Judean wilderness happens in 1946, is because the Romans were so thorough in their slaughter of the, of the Jews out in that region that no one survives who knows where these things are buried. They have to be discovered literally 1,400 years later, right? It's like, it's, sorry, like 2,000 years later that these are discovered. I got to do my math here. Um, but all that to say, the point is, there's only one group who is standing at the end of the Roman destruction of Israel, and that is the Pharisees. They're synagogue-based, they're Torah-based, they can, they can operate as Jews without a temple, 
even without the land. Like the Pharisees are very, they're able to um, to stand. And so, the, the and it is the Pharisees who are the ones who reconstruct Judaism after the destruction of the temple. All right, we'll talk more about that. And that actually, we'll, we'll talk about it right now. Um, when Israel is destroyed, what happens is, at this place called Yamnia or the Council of Jamnia, um, there is a there's a gathering of Jewish Pharisees, Pharisaical Jews, to reconstruct Judaism, and um, they reconstruct a liturgy for the synagogue. They come up with this what's called the eighteen benedictions, the eighteen blessings, um, and when they come up, when they reconstitute this eighteen benedictions, the eighteen blessings. One of the benediction, the 12th benediction, is meant to discourage Jews from adopting Jesus as Messiah. The 12th benediction says, quote, For apostates, let there be no hope, and the kingdom of arrogance quickly uproot. And then there's this addition. In a moment, let the Nazarenes and the heretics be destroyed. Let them be blotted from the book of life, and with the righteousness not be inscribed. Blessed are you, O Lord, who loves judgment. Is is the that's the twelfth benediction, and the twelfth benediction is changed with that with that about the Nazarenes and the heretics um, at the Council of Jamnia, and so what we find is that when when Judaism is reconstituted, what we would call today rabbinic Judaism, comes out of the Council of Jamnia. It actually is is very much anti-Jesus. It's not very—if you're going to be Jewish and practice Judaism as it comes out of this, there's not going to be a lot of space for arguing that Jesus is Messiah. The, the Pharisaical reconstitution of Judaism at the Council of Jamnia kind of precludes faith in Jesus. Now, we add to that, we fast forward— um, out of kind of the 70s, like uh, 70s and 80s is the reconstitution of Judaism, and you get into, um, in, in the second century, what we call the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, and um, in the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, this is 132 to 135, is the final rebellion of the Jewish nation against the Romans. Um, there's a total destruction of Jerusalem again, and there's a decree that Rome, Rome sets a decree that no, that, quote, no Jew should ever set foot again in Jerusalem. And up to that, so and that's an important point because up to that point, the Jerusalem Church had a long list of Jewish bishops that the leader of the Jewish Church in the first century and into the second century, a lot of Jewish leaders were very much these Jewish bishops would be in the Jerusalem Church. But after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, after this, the names listed are only Gentile, Roman, and Greek. And so after that 132 to 135 rebellion and that um, the destruction of Jerusalem, the second destruction of Jerusalem, you have a shift from a Gentile, from a Jewish leadership to a Gentile leadership in Jerusalem. All right? So at these historical factors, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Council of Jamni and the reconstitution of Judaism, and then the ultimate, the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 132-135, um, those are historical factors that begin, again, this parting of the ways, that if you're going to be Jewish, you are not going to be able to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Now you add to that as again as um, this Jewish literature is being um, is being written, like things like the Mishnah, which is second century reconstitution of Judaism, um, and the Talmud, which is a third and fourth century reconstitution of Judaism. You have you have built into those documents a this polemic against Jesus and his followers. And so things like that Mary was immoral, that she uh, that Jesus was an idolater, that Jesus and his followers have names that imply evil and misfortune, or that the idea that Jesus um, was simply a magician, um, that's a derogatory idea that um, there might have been some persecution of Jews against Christians. We see that in the book of Acts. Um, but it kind of ramps up. Um, there's some uh, in this thing called the Epistle um, to Diognetius. Um, yeah, I guess eventually it became standard in the Jewish mind of the 3rd and 4th century to think of conversion to Christianity, to conversion to Christian faith, meant abandoning Jewish identity. And in the Jewish mind, that was idolatry and apostasy. So that's by the third and fourth century. Now, on the other end, those who were who had faith in Jesus as Messiah, even if they were Jewish, ethnically Jewish, and you have this this influx of Gentile believers, like Paul's movements in the Book of Ephesians, to say, "Hey, you Ephesians, you are now incorporated into all of this." Um, there becomes, there begins with with all this animosity that's coming, and that there's animosity on the side of the of the believers in Jesus as well. That this polemic against Jews by Christians, and here's one one thing to note: there is a there is a polemic, and it begins among Jesus and Paul as an internal critique. In other words. Jesus has followers who are ethnically Jewish, but he also has a critique of Judaism. But Jesus and Paul are both Jewish, and so their critique is a critique from within. It's an internal critique. It's it's like the idea. It's like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, who offer this internal critique. Now. You would never call Isaiah or Ezekiel anti-Semitic, or you would never call Jesus anti-Semitic, or even Paul, like he's Jewish, he's not anti-Semitic. But if a Gentile offered that same critique, you might see how that might sound anti-Semitic. But the polemic against the Judaism of the day, if if, if these Christians are being persecuted— even Jews are persecuting other Jews, you might see how this would begin. So, like in the book of Revelation, it talks about the synagogue of Satan in one of the letters to the seven churches. Um, In Christian literature, in the second century, Christians are often depicted as refuting and silencing their Jewish opponents. Um, Ignatius of Antioch, and this is one of the saddest things, um, I think, is he has a quote that um, it's monstrous to talk of Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. And I, 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 get, I, I get the sentiment in that sense, but that you can see how, as the Apostle Paul talks about, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by bringing in the Gentiles, that now 
it, there is some sadness to me that by the second century you have followers of Jesus re-erecting that wall of hostility. Um, you do see in um, in various writers that there is persecution um, by Christians of Jewish Christians, and um, by the time of the third through fifth century. Um, Christians have endured persecution at the hands of both Jews and the Romans, and as they kind of rise to power in with the rise of Constantine and into the 5th century, that there is simply, um, there's no other way to put it, by that time, by the 5th century, there is just a bitter Christian polemic against Jews. Um, they call them God-killers, Christ-killers, and they're in the literature, there's just this sense that there is no longer any hope for redemption of Jews. It is one of the saddest um, things. And eventually you move into, into the medieval era with passion plays in which Jews in the community were brought up on stage and mistreated in front of angry crowds. And um, it's just, it's, it is horrible. And really, ultimately, you move into the ultimate... Um, you, you move into the Holocaust and these kind of seeds of anti-Semitism that unfortunately I come out of the church in some places, in many places, that lead to this idea that Jews are just looked at as less than human. And I just I it is it's heartbreaking to me. Um, one of the things I want to do as I teach uh, the New Testament is to help bring out the Jewish backgrounds of this. Um, that uh, especially a passage like this that we look at, that at one point it was the it was the Jews who were the home team and the Gentiles were the visitors, and but now it is the the it is entirely opposite of that. That we Gentiles, I as a Gentile, feel much more at home as a follower of Jesus than as a visitor, and that um, Jewish fo- people would probably feel less than home. Uh, more as a visitor, and um, and I I just feel like that there, especially after a post World War II environment, I think we have a responsibility to try as best we can to break down the dividing wall of hostility that um, that followers of Jesus might have had a part in re-erecting. Let me um, just as we talk talk about the fall the parting of the ways. Craig Evans, who writes a an article about um, Christianity and Judaism, the parting of the ways in the Dictionary of the Later New Testament um, and its documents. Um, he says this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote him at length here. Craig Evans is one of the best voices on this. Um, he says about the parting of the ways, that these factors largely account for the disappearance of what we would call Jewish Christianity. This disappearance only widened the gap between Christianity, which is now almost exclusively non-Jewish, and the Jewish people, now almost without any Christian among its population. By the time the Church reached its determinative period in the 4th and 5th centuries, there was virtually no Jewish input. About this same time, the rabbinic tradition, which was very critical of Jesus and Christianity, prevailed in defining Judaism. The shape of the New Testament canon and the definition of several important doctrines, such as the Trinity and the deity of Jesus, were settled really without Jewish input. 
not to say that that was wrong. I'm and I'm I'm moving off of his quote, but um, that's just the case that it was these these councils were had without really Jewish any Jewish input. And so back to his quote, quote, the final shape of Christianity, therefore, was increasingly non-Jewish, thus making Christianity less attractive, and so widening further the gap between Jews and Christians. And so today you might have even the idea of you have Jews and Christians, but in the first century you couldn't really make that distinction. So... Um, that is, that's a lot of in the weeds. Um, this is a topic that is really, to me, um, pretty close to my heart. I think when we go to Israel, what I want to make, make clear is that we are indebted to Jewish believers for the New Testament. We are indebted to Jesus as Messiah, as a Jewish man, um, and the followers of Jesus for preserving the traditions about him. And so we are very much, I am very much as a Gentile indebted to these um, Jewish faithful believers. And um, in that way, want to make sure that we get our Jewish backgrounds right as we read the New Testament. So anyway, that is, that's the parting, that, that is the parting of the ways in the weeds style. Hopefully you made it through this. If you did make it all the way through this, congratulations. Once again, gold star for you in your Bible. Um, and if you do have questions about this, feel free to talk to me. And um, again, congratulations for making it through this episode of In the Weeds. We will see you guys on Sunday.